I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Unfollowing Mum. Today I am really, really excited for this episode. I have a very special guest with me and her name is Libby Ward. Many of you, I am sure, will know her across social media as Diary of an Honest Mum. Oh, she's fantastic. The content that she creates is wonderful. If you have any kind of woes and fears around yourself as a mum, especially as a cycle-breaking mum, then... Libby is your go-to. So hi Libby, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I am a fan of your work and I am looking forward to this conversation. Oh, no, I'm I'm really grateful to have you here. I love your content. I love what you create, especially around cycle-breaking parenting. It's incredibly uplifting. And just a reminder, I think it can be really intimidating, I guess, or overwhelming when you haven't had that positive role model in childhood. It, it's difficult and it makes it so much harder, I think, to trust in your own instincts as a parent. So can you tell us a bit about what you do, who you are? And yeah, let us know about your journal as well. Yeah, so... I am a digital creator on social media and a public speaker, and I like to think of myself as a mental health advocate, a motherhood advocate, so I love to talk about hard things that other people don't really seem to be talking about so much. I felt really alone in my journey as a mom and even an adult in general. I felt like I really didn't fit into any of my circles, and I didn't have a whole lot of people to look up to, and social media was always really a source of shame for me. So in 2020, when we got locked down in a pandemic, I joined TikTok and had no plans of growing a following. I didn't know what an influencer was, but I thought, oh, I'm just going to make some content that's authentic to me. These people seem real and down to earth, and so I started making content about motherhood and mental health and trauma and here we are three years later and everything's grown exponentially. And I just love being able to connect with women every day, mothers particularly, but I have a lot of women who follow me and so many of us struggle with the same things. You know, we question ourselves, we struggle with guilt and shame and insecurities around so many different things. And I know for me, it's nice to know I'm not alone. And I love being able to be the voice that says things that other people won't say out loud and let other people know they're not alone too. So my journal, I, it's actually a funny story because I have really gone down this journey of being self-aware. So when I struggled a lot with comparison and guilt and overwhelm, I found myself just sort of scrambling and always feeling like I had never done enough. And I had to really start paying attention to what my circumstances were, what my partner was like, what my kids were like, what our financial situation was like, all these different things. And once I started to become more self-aware, it helped me to really ground myself and say, you know what, considering all these things, you're doing a good job. And it helped me to reset expectations and did a lot of reading of self-help books and the likes of that. And so when I started talking about this on social media, I got a lot of questions from people saying, how do you get more self-aware? How do you actually do that? And so I created a free printable that people could use as a daily journal, five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night. 
and my email list exploded and thousands of people downloaded it and people were like, hey, this would be much easier if it was in a book format. So as you do, as someone with ADHD, I was like, oh, I'll get it printed on Amazon. And like two <laughs> months later, I was like, here you go. And I really didn't think much would happen, but it's, you know, thousands of people have purchased it now. And it brings me so much joy to know that I can help moms become a little bit more self-aware and to give themselves grace and to not struggle with so much guilt or comparison and set realistic expectations. I made it super simple and straightforward because we don't have a lot of time and energy as moms. So it's five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, and it just kind of helps you shift your mindset and feel better about yourself and set some realistic expectations. I love that. I absolutely adore even the term being more self-aware because I think Coming from the background that I come from, and we'll touch on this a bit more as the podcast goes on for yourself, I find self-awareness can be really difficult. I'll quite often have to really step back and like that self-reflection, just being able to say to myself, no, actually you are okay, and regulate myself and say, no, you are doing a good job here. Don't listen to that inner critic. You are doing fine. It's really difficult. And I think you had some very similar experiences in your upbringing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I grew up, I'm from Canada and I grew up with a single mom who had undiagnosed and untreated mental illnesses and personality disorders. And so therapy was not something that was done or talked about. Medication was not something that was done or talked about. It was just plowing through life. And we lived in poverty. We moved often at least once a year or so. There was different men that came in and out of our lives. And life was pretty chaotic. It was me and my brother and my mom for the most part. And so we never really had a sense of community. I didn't have access to other adults or adults with an education or adults who were great role models. And I really was in survival mode for most of my childhood. And there's a term I learned recently called parentification. When you're parentified, that's when you sort of become like the parent and you end up having to do parent things like paying the bills and helping your parent regulate their emotions and being their therapist and being the responsible one and doing the cooking and the cleaning. And, um, you know, it shows up in many different ways, but I was made to be fairly responsible from a very young age. And like I said, was very much in survival mode. So when I entered adulthood, I had this weird contrast of on one hand, I was so much more prepared than my peers because I had been doing adult things for many, many years, but I was, so unprepared in that I was never really able to be a child. I was never able to explore who I really am. I was never able to really love who I am because I didn't really have that affirmation. I was just going from place to place and fire to fire, putting them out. And all of a sudden I was in adulthood grambling to try and get my life together, but internally was not okay. And I didn't really recognize how not okay I was until I became a mom, until I had all these triggers and stressors and seeing my kids doing things that I didn't get to do or seeing them not do things that I had to do, or even just the overstimulation I would feel. And the fact that like, I was never taught emotional regulation. I was never taught that my emotions were okay. And so I knew that I didn't want to yell at my kids. And I knew that I had all these intentions of doing parenthood a certain way, but actually being able to do it was exponentially harder than I ever anticipated because I didn't have that model growing up. And here I was trying to figure out how to parent a child while I'm also reparenting myself, while also reliving and regrieving all the things I went through in childhood that I had blocked out from, you know, coming of age to becoming a mom and pretended I was fine. And here they like they just became unearthed almost. Yeah. yeah. I mom. And and it was more important than ever to be regulated and more important than ever to be in control of my emotions and be nurturing and loving and, and all these different qualities of being a mom. And it was harder than ever to be the person that I wanted to be because I was so exhausted and reliving so much of my own trauma. 
It's funny that you talk about, I mean, it's, you honestly could be talking about my experience growing up. It's so similar. And it's funny that you talk about, not funny, ha ha, but that you talk about how all of this became unearthed when you became a mother, because the majority of people that I speak to who have chosen to have children, because I found a lot of people that I speak to who have had that toxic upbringing have chosen not to go on and be parents because they genuinely fear that they will either repeat the cycle or they're just done with parenting somebody and they just want to be able to be them and have something for them. And in my experience, which it sounds pretty similar to you, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that I had this problem and that I had this negative experience if you'd have asked me when 10 15 years ago and I say this all the time I would have told you my mum was my best friend and we had a super close relationship I was oblivious to how much of my upbringing I'd been parentified and been emotionally abused and it was when I became a mum that small things would start to happen for me and I would look and think that wouldn't have happened for me as a child or why didn't I get that experience or I would notice my mum's behaviour with my children and think, you're not doing that to them. Don't do that to them. You won't do that the way that you did that with me. And it's so triggering. And at the same time, being a mother is difficult enough as it is. It's, there's a lot of stuff that comes up with it. Even if you had the healthiest of upbringings, there are going to be lots of things that you're going to find triggering, that you're going to find difficult. But when we look at somebody who has had that parentification, who's had that experience, who really doesn't know themselves in the way that somebody who has had an, a, a typical upbringing might or a, a healthy upbringing might, it's so compounded. How did you start to recognize these things and how did you start to cope with these things that were triggering in you and that you were finding really overwhelming? I do want to answer that question. Okay. But you said when you were talking about seeing how your mom was interacting with your children and thinking you're not going to do that to them. Mm hmm and so true for me. And it really made me realize as I thought about it, that I had been conditioned to believe in my core that being treated like that was normal yeah. and okay. And my self-worth was so low and my codependency was so high and my expectation for what I deserved and the behavior that I would accept and the treatment that I would accept the bar was so low and I didn't realize that until I had kids and the very thing that say my mom would do or say to my children was a completely different reaction to me. It seemed, Oh, okay. That's normal. That's fine. That's how it is. But as soon as it happened to my kids, this protective shield came up of they don't deserve that. That's not fair treatment. This behavior is not okay. And it was when I started to see that, that I was like, hold on a second. I also was a child. I also still have an inner child. I am still worthy. And it took a long time to get there. It's not like it was the first time. It was yeah. this very losing period of like, how is it that I accept this behavior for myself, but not for my kids? And how is it that I went my entire childhood without my own mom having that self-awareness to say, this is not okay. And it is completely a mind, I'm not going to swear, but it's a mind hook. It is. <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh, I would do anything to protect these children, but I wouldn't do anything to protect myself. What? Yeah. what? And, you know, the thing that pushed me to put up boundaries with my mom as an adult wasn't initially to protect myself. It was to protect them. Yeah. And sometimes to protect them from the version of me that I became when I was around my mom. Yeah. For me, I don't know if you'll know, and I'm sure if anybody who's listening to this episode hasn't listened to any of the podcasts before, my mom actually lived with us. So we bought my childhood home and we built her an annex. And the more, the, the, the further that we got into that stage, the more toxic our relationship became. And so often I feel that I showed up as a version of myself that I really didn't like. And that I didn't want my kids to see. And I could be really unkind and snappy and just not who I want to be. And I know that for myself. And it would show up 
when I was around my mum. And that was so difficult for me because after that, you're then processing these feelings of guilt. And am I the problem? Am I as bad as as that? Do I do these things? And you internalize it because growing up in a toxic household, we as children, we internalize everything because it's too dangerous to think that the parent might be the problem. We can't do anything about that as children. So we internalize it. We take it on ourselves and think, okay, we must be the problem here and we're not. And then as a healthy adult or a healing adult, when those behaviors present themselves in you it's so overwhelming and that's eventually how we I ended up becoming no contact with my mum so I don't have any contact with her at all we are completely estranged my children don't have any contact with her and that was to protect them and to protect my family and to keep us safe it wasn't for me. And I've said time and time again, I think honestly, hand on heart, had it have just been me alone and I didn't have children and I wasn't married uh, and looking at a marriage that she was taking apart piece by piece, I would never have walked away from her ever because I don't think I would ever have thought that I was worthy of doing that for me. Right. Because you'd been taught your whole life that you weren't. Yeah. And that not the most important that she was the most important and so you do whatever is necessary to keep her happy because you've learned for many years that she's more important than you are all of a sudden you have kids and you're like wait a second mm-hmm. no they're more important uh I I feel very very similar ways I have a question for you actually did you feel a sense of panic when you started to see some of your mom's traits in yourself and started to see some of the ways that you would behave and started to think I'm just like her. Did you struggle to conceptualize how bad it actually was and go immediately to I'm just like her and go into panic mode and how do I fix this? Because I I definitely did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the thing is, when I've spoken to my therapist, and I've spoken to countless psychotherapists and psychologists about this, regardless of how much work you've put in, how far along you are in your healing journey, how much effort you're putting in, how self-aware you are, there will be times when you will show up as that parent that caused you harm in some way or another. And it is inevitable. And it's being gentle with yourself and saying, okay, no, I've shown up that way and I don't like that, but I am not as bad as that was because I'm looking at it, I'm aware of it, I'm addressing it, and then going and speaking to my kids about it and building a repair in the way that perhaps I've screamed or shouted or I've lost my temper or I've done something that I then remember from childhood. And it's so difficult. There is this overwhelming panic of, I'm just like my mum. I'm 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 that person. I'm awful. I must be, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. And then but I don't know any other way to be. So how how do I navigate this? What do I do? How do I not be that person? Because well, who, who the hell am I? I don't even know. What do I look to? What do I aspire to be like? And where is the line? So when we spend our entire childhood and all of the feelings and experiences of being treated that way, we carry all of those feelings And then when one thing happens, it reminds us of all the other things that have hurt us in a similar way. So I think that, you know, when I hear my mom come out of my mouth and I hear myself say or do the things that she had done my entire childhood, rather than looking at it as an isolated incident that I can repair and fix and move on to the next time, I automatically feel all those feelings and assume that my child is feeling just as many of those feelings as I am. And it's really hard to step away from in in the moment. And to answer your question, how did I start to break the cycle? I'm still on this journey. I think sometimes when we talk about being a cycle breaker and reparenting ourselves, especially for those who are new to the term or new to the idea, there's this hope in this idea that it's going to be one thing that happens or there's one solution or one answer or one turning point where you were one type of mom one day and another type of mom the next day. And unfortunately, that's not the case. You know, for me, it started with a lot of baby steps of, you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, being around women that I wanted to be like. And honestly, I think that was some of the most 
pivotal changes that happened in my life was going, okay, I don't want to be like this version of a mom, but who can I surround myself with? What voices can I listen to? What things can I read? What people can I associate with that mother in a way that I want to be like? And that was hard for me too, because when I started out with this perfectionistic idea of being a cycle breaker, and I found these women that I wanted to be like, I tried to emulate them perfectly. And I tried to be the mom and I tried to go the opposite direction. And then that filled me with shame because it was so much harder for me to show up in those ways because of my trauma and because of my codependent relationship and because of all of that. And so for me, it went from I don't want to be like my mom to, I want to be like all of these moms to, oh my gosh, it's so hard to do everything completely perfectly. Where is the middle line? And I still daily am going, okay, so that's not normal. That's not normal, but where is the normal line? How do I fit into that? And so that's why I see it as this daily journey of saying, okay, what feels right to me? What feels healthy? What don't I want to be like? How did I show up yesterday that I don't want to show up today? And it's just little by little making changes. Um, there's this amazing video that I've seen going around that says something like, I'm not even going to do it justice, but it's like today there's a child being put in a timeout instead of being screamed at today. There's a child whose emotions are being validated instead of being put in a timeout today, you know, and it was going through the line of the most extreme behaviors and the most extreme reactions to slowly it getting better and better. And I think it's such a beautiful way to talk about cycle breaking, because, you know, if we talk about the goal of not screaming at your children, that's great and all fine and dandy. And I don't think any of us really want to do that, but sometimes you reach your limit and you do it. So should the goal be instead of screaming, I react perfectly and I regulate and I meditate and I sit with them and I hold their emotions and I do everything perfectly or should the first goal be just don't yell, yeah. just walk away. And maybe you didn't validate their emotions in that moment, but you do that enough times and you learn how to regulate enough that eventually you start making those changes. And so for me, that's, that's what it looked like in the beginning. It looked like I want to scream in your face and frighten you because I know that's going to make whatever's happening right now that's making my body go into fight or flight stop. And instead of doing that, I'm going to walk away. And then eventually it was instead of walking away, I'm going to stay here, but I'm going to plug my ears and close my eyes and turn around so that the sensory input stops coming in. And then eventually it was, I'm going to keep my eyes open and I'm going to stay here and I'm going to let myself feel angry inside, but I'm not going to let it come out in my voice. And then, you know, eventually I got to a point where I could, and I mean, it's not like I've made it now, but I am better at being able to regulate myself enough to co-regulate with my child. But part of the struggle I see on social media is that we see all these accounts and all this information and all this parenting guru advice that just tells you exactly what to do for your child's benefit. But there's this gap in, okay, but I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but how do I actually get there? Like, where's the middle ground? And I think it's really important to talk about being able to make baby steps to get there because it's really scary when you hear your mother come out of your mouth and you have no idea what the journey is from that to the way that you actually want to be. I hope anyone listening finds that as validating as I do, because honestly, there is this myth. And I spoke to a brilliant psychologist called Dr. Emma Spanberg. She's written Parenting for Humans. And she was talking about cycle breaking and generational trauma. We, it's ne There's never kind of an end thing. There's never an end goal. Our kids are going to have things that they're going to want to break as a cycle and their kids are going to have things that they want to break as a cycle because we evolve we develop things that are now socially acceptable and considered good parenting might not be in 50 years time and that's okay because what we're doing is we're constantly working on being the best parent that we can be and we are going to mess that up we are going to make mistakes every so often but each time that we do we're aware of it we reflect on it we build a repair with our child in in the way that we can and we move forward in small slow steps there's never any kind of oh 
tick. We've done it now. We've completed it. We don't have to worry about trying to break any cycle anymore because we've just done it. That's not the reality of cycle breaking. And I wish it was. I wish you could just snap your fingers and go, well, I'm never going to show up as my mum. I'm never going to scream and shout at them again. I'm always going to be that parent that deep breath and off we go. And it's just not the reality when you're trying to regulate yourself. Even people who have had the most healthy upbringings are going to make mistakes and their kids are going to have to work through those things with them but it's being accountable and being able to reflect on it and say I want to do this better I want to be able to work towards this I'm going to start making those baby steps and actually putting that into practice and changing the behavior which is what you're doing right and it's modeling that humility and accountability I think that's the key difference of saying you know what I'm not perfect mommy's not perfect. Mommy made a mistake. You didn't deserve that. And I'm sorry. And this is how I'm going to try to do better and not guilting or shaming our children into feeling like they are responsible for our every emotion and reaction. And so whenever I do something that I'm not proud of, or I show up in a way that I don't want to show up, I have to remind myself of that awareness that I have and that accountability that I have and what it would have meant to me if one time, one time, just once, just one time, my mom had sat down and said, I'm really sorry. You didn't deserve it. I'm not perfect. And the fact that I yearn for that one time breaks my heart, but it also makes me feel proud of the fact that even though I'm not perfect, I can still own my mistakes and I can still say I'm not perfect. And then how beautiful is it to teach our children that it's okay to also make mistakes and that they're not going to be perfect. And my hope is that that gives them a level of comfort to come to me when they've done things that they're not proud of and not create this cycle and this environment of shame and just shoving things under the rug and pretending everything's okay. And then just bursting out and not having that level of depth in your, in your relationship. I know my kids are going to grow up And they're going to be like, my mom, X, Y, Z, I didn't like it. I don't want to be like that. I hope, I hope they do that. You know, there's literally no perfect humans, no perfect parents in the world. And I want them to be able to say, I didn't like the way she did this. I'd like to do it different. And I like to think that I would have enough humility to say, good for you. You know, and then I can have the awareness in myself and say, you know what? I didn't do that perfectly. I was overwhelmed. I was overstimulated or we were struggling with money or I didn't have the skills just saying I was never taught that. And I tried my best and I didn't, I, I couldn't do what you needed. And I'm really sorry. Instead of I was a great parent. You don't know how good you have it. <laughs> what I had to deal with when I was growing up, you didn't have to deal with this. Like your life was amazing. You had no idea what I was going through it's having compassion for myself, but also being accountable. And I think those are things that so many adults, people in general struggle with. It's like, we think if we have self-compassion, then we'll never be accountable and we'll never make change and we'll never do anything differently because we need that tough love. So we're not compassionate with ourselves. And then we're also not compassionate with other people. And then we think, well, if we're always accountable and then we admit we make mistakes and we admit that we're not perfect, then, you know, like if we do that, then we can't have self-compassion. We have to only ever be accountable. And it's like, no, you can, you can do it all. You can give yourself grace. You can have self-compassion and you can also say, I'm going to try and do things better. Yeah, you can. And I think it's incredibly overwhelming. We, we all know that it's incredibly overwhelming. And I did a TikTok uh, last week talking about if I get a lot of people will say to me, you're modeling behavior to your children that they're going to come back to you and, and you're teaching your children to cut people off. Your children are going to cut you off because you're teaching them to cut people off. And I'd said, if I behave in a way that is emotionally abusive, If I behave in a way that is toxic and that causes them damage and I won't be accountable for that in the way that my parent would not be accountable for that. And I'm unwilling to work on myself and to make a change and to listen to them and sit with them, then yeah, absolutely. I'm teaching them to cut people off because there's no place in your life for somebody who cannot 
respect you, who cannot respect your boundaries and who cannot allow for that accountability and say, actually, yeah, no, I made a mistake there. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes. So that kind of hanging over you of, and I get it a lot of your your kids will cut you off. And I think a lot of people who have cut contact with parents hear it very often. That doesn't frighten me and that doesn't worry me because I know that I'm willing to be accountable and that if they come to me at any point and say to me, mom, you did this and it it hurt me and it, it wasn't okay and I'm not going to allow you to behave like that to me now, I will want to listen to that and I will want to make changes to help build the repair in our relationship. And that's something that we didn't have. And it baffles me how different so many of our experiences would be if we just had a parent that would apologize. If we just had a parent that would come to us and say, yeah, I got that wrong. And I'm sorry, because I'm not perfect, as opposed to, oh, I guess I'm the worst mum in the world then. Or you have no idea what you're talking about. Think of my struggles and always centering themselves. If there was just some apology just some accountability. And I don't feel like that's a lot to ask. No. And I think when I get comments like that, because I get them a lot, I think how lucky are you that you can't even imagine what it would be like to have to cut contact with your own mother? How lucky are you to have never been emotionally abused or gaslit or disrespected or you know how lucky are you to not even get to a place in your mind where you can conceive how a mother can treat their child so poorly and for so long that it gets to the point that they don't want them in your life what a blessing that is in your life Mm. Um, because for those of us who have endured years of manipulation or emotional abuse or gaslighting or other types of abuse we I know I can speak for myself I still want my mom to be happy deep down. I still want her to be okay. I still want to have a relationship with her. I still want that to work. And, you know, I haven't completely cut my mom off, but I have a very, very limited relationship with her now. And it is really hard to do that. And I have to do it for my own peace. I have to do it for my children's safety and peace. I have to do it for the overall well-being of our family. And, you know, when people hear us talk about cutting our parents off, I don't think they recognize the emotional turmoil that that comes with and the guilt that we're plagued with because we've been made to feel responsible for them and how much it actually takes to get to a point where you say to your own mother or you don't even say it, I don't want you in my life. Because when we talk about cutting other people out of our lives, you know, a boyfriend or a toxic friend or, you know, an aunt or an uncle, you can find other friends, you can find other people, you can find other people in your life to fill those spaces. There is nothing that can replace a mother and what a mother can truly do for your overall, you know, self-worth and the things they were supposed to teach you and that relation, like there's nothing that can do that. And my therapist once told me that, you know, being in a narcissistic relationship is extremely hard, but when it's a mother daughter relationship, it's like the pinnacle of difficulty. And that just made me feel so validated. And I don't know, I guess I just think about when people make these comments, they don't necessarily think about or realize how much it had to take to get to that point. And how, even when you cut them off, there's still a lot that you're emotionally dealing with. And a lot that you have to navigate with them, not in your life, but you have to prioritize your peace and your kid's safety and just how lucky they are to not have to make that decision. Yeah, so incredibly lucky. And there is so much that goes into it. And there's so much that comes from the fallout of it afterwards. I mean, the, the point that you have to get to, to be able to break past all of that shame, all of that trauma to say, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. I'm done is absolutely monumental but then the bit that comes afterwards as well the learning how to reparent yourself the dealing with the guilt dealing with the shame around it that too is huge and it's so difficult to process and then of course you're processing it for these small humans that need their mother 
but are also a bit confused as to why you don't have your mother. And it's really difficult for everybody involved. It's never a decision. I've never spoken to anybody who has found it a decision that was taken lightly or something that was just done flippantly. I've spoken to plenty of people who've said, actually, for me, it was quite an easy decision. I needed them out of my life. Otherwise, they were going to completely destroy it. But never have I spoken to anyone who's gone, do you know what? They just didn't show up to my school performance one year and I just didn't fancy having them in my life. Right. Oh, they didn't give me a down payment for my house, so I decided to cut them out. No, um, it's complex emotional trauma that you can no longer deal with. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Difficult thing to go through. It is. And it's a heavy thing to go through. And I think for me, that was why I wanted to create Unfollowing Mum was so that other people knew that there are people out there who go through it. Because it's also very taboo. People don't like to talk about it because there is such a stigma around it, especially when it is a mother. And that's why it becomes such a difficult topic to discuss. As with everything, when we have an experience, seeing other people go through it or speaking to other people who are in the same boat as us is huge for helping rebuild that confidence, rebuild that sense of self-worth. And that's not really something that we can see very easily out there because it's so taboo and it's something that people are so afraid to talk about. It's really important to figure out where the line is. And I say that meaning like where the line is in lots of different things that I wasn't taught in childhood. But, you know, prior to finding a community of cycle breakers, sharing online, realizing that I wasn't the only one, I was surrounded by a lot of women, a lot of mothers, a lot of people who had typical healthy upbringings, who had relationships with their parents, who didn't have a lot of, you know, trauma. And I had no idea where to figure out what was normal or what was abnormal. And when I had been so used to how I was treated by my mom, there were so many things I didn't even realize at that point were abnormal. And then once I started connecting with other cycle breakers, I was like, oh, this isn't just a me experience. This thing that happened is a very common experience for cycle breakers, or this is an unhealthy behavior this is where the healthy line is. And I, you know, honestly don't know where I would be without having that connection with other people who are walking the same path, because it's really hard to find where that line of what is okay and what's not okay. And what's a common experience and where should I be putting my foot down and also helping relieving the guilt of putting your foot down too. Do you find quite often that you'll say something flippantly, like I do this to my partner all the time and I'll be like, oh yeah, that happened to me when I was a child. And he will just look at me and be like, excuse me, (laughs) that's not a normal experience. And I'll be like, no, 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 that happens to everybody. And he'll be like, no, it doesn't. Does that happen to you? Uh, I mean, less now because I've shared so much, but all the time, actually we were at a cottage this weekend with some friends and family And I was telling a story I've often told about my childhood. And one of the guys that was there had never heard the story, knew me very well. And of course, all the people who know me well are like, oh, yeah, that's another story from Libby's childhood. Heard that one before. That's crazy. But we know it. And his face, because he had never hit was jaw was on the floor. And it reminded me how shocking my childhood is to new people, because I'm so used to knowing it, living it, telling the story, you know, the people who know me are, but sometimes I say things to, in social circumstances. And I remember how abnormal my childhood actually was. Yeah. I was speaking to Helen Villas, who's a psychotherapist who specializes in narcissism and Katie McKenna, they both specialize in narcissism. And they'd said that, quite often they will have clients or they will be speaking to people who will say, oh, it wasn't that bad. And I used to do that a lot with my childhood. I'd say, oh, it wasn't that bad. And then they would relate the story back to that person as if it was a stranger. And that was when you'd feel it. That was when you'd be like, oh no, shit, that that was that bad. I never even thought of it that way. But now you've just said it back to me, imagining that's someone else that's bad. But imagining it for yourself. And again, it goes back to that lack of self-worth because imagining it being you, you're like, no, that happened. Yeah. I'm so used to that. That happened. But if 
you told me some of the things that have happened to me as a child that had happened to you, I'd be like, wow, Libby, that's awful. Right, right. You imagine them or see them happening to your child. Yeah. And you just think that's not okay. I was in therapy a few weeks ago and I was telling her about something that had happened in my childhood and how my daughter was asking me questions and she wanted answers about certain things in my childhood because she's coming to the age where she asks a lot of questions. And I had to wrestle with, do I tell her this part of the story? Do I tell her that this happened to me? Do I tell her that I went through this at the same age that she is right now? And I couldn't bring myself to tell her what had happened to me. And I was trying to navigate what is an appropriate amount to tell an eight-year-old about my childhood when I was eight-year-old. How much detail do I give? Where is the line of telling the truth and telling too much? And she kind of stopped me. And she was noting how I was really unemotional about the event that had happened to me and how I didn't really seem to have, you know, like I wasn't upset talking about it. She was like, how interesting is it that you don't even want to tell your child about something that happened to you that was traumatic because you're afraid of traumatizing them simply by talking about it, that talking about something that happened to you would traumatize them but you actually lived it. And that made me just step back and go, oh, wow. Because I had so much compassion for my child thinking about what she would go through, hearing about what I went through, but I couldn't even have a portion of that compassion for myself actually living it. Yeah, completely. And it's it's the most bizarre thing because I like to think that I am a compassionate person. I know that I have oodles of compassion but not for me very rarely for me and I've had to really work and a big step of that was putting no contact in with my mum and I know I know I did that for my kids and for my relationship and for my overall family but maintaining it I like to think maintaining it and knowing that actually, no, even after all the dust has settled, I'm still no contact and will remain so. That's me showing myself compassion because that's the way in which I can actually heal. And so much more of my childhood every week, I'll start to remember more things. And the more I research things, the more I realize actually that was that kind of abuse and I didn't that's not acceptable. That wasn't actually normal like you thought, like terms like parentification um covert sexual abuse all these different things that start to come up for me that I'm like wow that mm, that that wasn't normal and I thought it was and that's not okay and it's it's a constant process but for me a part of the compassion now for myself is maintaining that hard line and saying this is not something I'm going to allow into my life just because it'll make you feel good you mentioned that you have a limited relationship with your mum do your kids have a relationship with your mum very minimal Very minimal. I mean, there's no real depth to the relationship anyway, because she has a real inability to connect with anyone other than herself and to show a genuine interest in other people. And so with children, that really stagnates a relationship if you're not able to get on their level, not just physically, but even be able to show interest in what they're saying. And so currently, we see each other holidays not all holidays, some holidays, and once every couple months. And this is after a period of no contact for a while. And so I I see her doing some of the work, but I'm at a point where I no longer get my hopes up. uh, So I keep very much an arm's length. And so my kids have somewhat of a relationship, but it's not something that they are aware that is abnormal. I don't think, you know, they're six and eight and it's just normal to not see grandma very much. It's normal to not really connect. It's sort of a very peripheral relationship. And I don't go into a lot of detail of why, but, you know, as they get older, they're starting to notice things that stand out and are abnormal. And you know, when the time comes, we'll have some hard conversations. But for right now, it's just it is our normal that it's a very peripheral surface level relationship. And that's the only way that that relationship will continue is if it stays that way, because uh, depth 
ends up turning to pain yeah. in that dynamic. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. I would say that when I was no contact, it was easier in the, in the way that I wasn't having to constantly make decisions about what's appropriate and what's too much and what's not enough and what to say something about what not to say something about where, you know, constantly having to figure out the whole relationship and what is said or not said when it was no contact, it was just nothing. So the decisions weren't there. Um, there was a, still an emotional turmoil, but the decisions weren't there. Whereas now it's very much constantly having to renegotiate and refigure out like the boundary that I have. Have I said it clearly enough? Have I mentioned it recently? If it's crossed, how do I, you know, bring it up? So it's, yeah, it's, it's not easy at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can see that. I speak to a lot of people who will say to me, "What? Well, how do you kind of, how do you put boundaries in place? Because I don't want to go no contact completely. I kind of want to have something. I'm her only family. And it's almost always about mm -hmm. her. It's I'm her only family or she's very old or, well, I don't want to regret it when she dies. It's, it's almost always focused on her again, as opposed to being, I think this is right for me. And I always have to kind of say, well, I don't know, because we had no boundaries and then we were no contact. There was kind of no, there was attempts to set boundaries, but they were relentlessly just, they weren't even crossed. They were like annihilated. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for me. So it's interesting to hear you say that it's a constant renegotiation, a constant evaluation of whether or not, okay, have I set this firmly? Has it been crossed? If it's crossed, what am I going to do? All those questions that pop up for you. And I think it's also really reassuring for people hearing that that is the norm for your kids, that they don't, there's no kind of missing out on anything. Because of course there's not. That's that's the experience that they've had. They're not going to be missing out on anything other than a very toxic relationship that you don't want them to have anyway. And I think for my children, they lived with her for a long time. So it, it hit them really hard, really hard. And it was some incredibly difficult conversations to have with some very small children. And eventually, with enough rope, she hung herself, really, on the way that she behaved and my eldest being able to see that without us having to really do anything. But when it's a low contact relationship, it's interesting to hear you saying about it being that constant evaluation, but also that it is the norm for your children. Because I think a lot of people who go low contact when their kids are very tiny worry about how, how are my kids going to find this? Is it going to be okay? Are my kids going to come home from school and be saying, oh, well, so-and-so sees his grandma. Why don't I? And that's not been something that you've experienced. No, no, not really. It's just very much been their norm. And I think as they get older, they will notice the difference and we'll talk about it. But at the end of the day, as parents, we have to make decisions that protect our children in many areas of life that they won't understand until maybe even they become parents. Maybe they'll mm -hmm. never understand they won't get it till they're adults. You know, there's so many things that we have to choose for our kids that they don't like in the moment or they don't understand in the moment. And we have to make those decisions regardless of whether they get it, yeah. knowing that we're protecting them. And if they never have to experience the thing that we are protecting them from, and they are unhappy with not having that relationship, I think I've still done my job by protecting them because they never have to know what it is like to go through that emotional abuse or to go through that type of relationship and have to do all of the work that I'm now having to do. So I, I know deep in my heart that I am protecting my children by having those boundaries and by being very careful about that relationship. And that's just another part for me as a parent that I have to navigate talking to my kids about my mom, you know, and it's made me have to have more self-compassion for myself and grieve for myself that this is, is even a conversation I have to have. Like how much would I like it to have a mom who's able to show up how I need her to show up, not just for me, but for my kids. 
And uh, it really, it really sucks. I just sometimes just say that to people, like it feels hard because it is hard and it's hard having to set boundaries or cut people out. And it's hard having to have those conversations with your kids. And it's hard having to maybe deal with them being upset with you one day for cutting that parent out. But you know, deep in your heart that you are doing it for their safety and for their peace and for your whole family's well-being and that your intentions are good and you know what you're protecting them from even if they don't know. I couldn't agree with you more. I honestly couldn't. And that's the main thing as a parent. And I've actually have had this conversation with my eldest who's 12 that if at any point when he is an an adult and he wants to choose to reach out to her to have contact with her, that will be his decision because he'll be responsible for his own mental well-being and for his own safety. But whilst I'm responsible for it and whilst I'm responsible for keeping him safe, making sure that he is not ill-treated and that he's not manipulated or any of the things that I could see were happening to him, then I will continue to protect him. And the way in which I do that is by not, not allowing contact. And that he's been very accepting of that, actually. He's been very understanding of that. And it's a difficult conversation to have with a child of any age, regardless of whether they're a young teen or whether they are smaller, and trying to navigate it in an age-appropriate way. It's really difficult. It's meant to be difficult because it, that it's a hard thing. It's meant to be difficult, but it is really important. Well, and what I think is really fascinating and powerful is that as someone who's grown up with a narcissistic parent, I still currently very much struggle in new relationships and friendships, different people I meet to figure out what's normal, what's not, what's love bombing, what's manipulation, what are their intentions, what is all of this, because I'm so used to having low self-worth and people pleasing and prioritizing other people's emotions and so many other things that it's really hard for me to recognize um, in the beginning sometimes how toxic someone is. My radar is getting but it's, it's just complicated and complex. And when I look at my friends who grew up in relatively healthy environments who don't have narcissistic abuse in their past or emotional manipulation, they just naturally gravitate away from people who are toxic. They, um, their ability to navigate relationships is so much stronger. And so I share that to say, you know, be, when you grow up with someone who's manipulative, and narcissistic, it becomes so normalized. And what you're doing for your child now is setting him up so that one day, maybe when he's 25 and he says, you know what, I'm going to try a relationship with grandma. After he spends a couple days with grandma, he's going to go, that's not normal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If he had those 25 years of it being normal, it would be so much harder to recognize because that becomes your normal. And so you're te- we're teaching our children what is normal, what is acceptable, what is the difference between a healthy relationship and an unhealthy one and healthy communication and accountability and not healthy. And so I guess the hope is that by sheltering them from that and teaching them what is normal in a relationship, their radar is going to be that much stronger and healthier when they enter adulthood and they navigate these different relationships for themselves outside of grandma. Even, you know, when you meet a partner, you hear all the time people who were raised in narcissistic households get drawn to those personalities unintentionally in adulthood. And then that cycle is hard to break because you're, there's this weird thing that draws you to them. And so how powerful is it to know, I think for me, that I'm teaching my children what is emotionally healthy so that when they get to adulthood, they're not having to navigate like what is a normal, healthy relationship. I'm giving them those skills. Absolutely. And it's it's identifying those toxic people. Like I used to joke to friends that my type would be a trauma bond because that would be what I would draw. I like if you're toxic come over because I relate. I get you. You're my friend. Amazing. And it's so not funny, but it's so true. Because oh. to me, those people were like, oh, okay, I, I get you. I know how to be around you. I know what you expect from me. You expect fawning. You expect compliance. You expect codependency. And I know how to be the person that you want me to be. So I can do that for you. But I have no idea how to navigate a normal 
relationship with someone who's got healthy boundaries. In fact, implement those boundaries. And prior to doing so much work, I would have been like, they hate me. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm still navigating it now sometimes. And my radar is getting better now where I used to be when I met people and they were love bombing me. They're being so nice and so complimentary. And, all, you know, the first time we met, we feel like we're best friends and then we do everything together and they're so wonderful. It feels so good for a while. And then all of a sudden the manipulation starts and the little comments start and the little things start. And then all of a sudden you're like, where did I go? Like, what is happening here? And I've realized that I am naturally drawn to people who make me feel comfortable and loved and warm from the moment I meet them. Mm -hmm. And those usually end up being the most toxic relationships. And the people like my husband, like some of my closest friends who at first I'm like, "Mm, can't quite figure you out. You're not oversharing. You're not giving me all your emotions and your life story. You're not telling me all these amazing things. You seem at the top, you seem standoffish. You seem, Mm -hmm. you know, they have strong boundaries or they're not giving a lot. They're kind of just figuring me out, which is a normal way to be in relationship and start relationships. Yeah. Is low burn. And my best, healthiest relationships now are with people who I started off being like, mm, I'm not so sure. And inside, I kind of was like, do they hate me? They hate me. I'm not sure if they like me. I don't know if they, but they end up being healthy relationships. And it's usually the ones that are like, uh, you know, an amazing, you know, jumpstart loving relationship in the beginning that turn out to be toxic as hell. So yeah. I recognize that in myself now, and it's still hard to navigate, even though I recognize it. Yeah, it is. It's really difficult to navigate. And it is so true. I like the amount of times that I've spoken to people who've been like, I think I must be the problem because my mom was a narcissist. My dad didn't want to be around me. My my partner was a narcissist. And I'm just like, oh, no, girl, that's me. <laughs> and that was me. That That was me. That was my upbringing. That was my first long term relationship. You know, I was drawn to these people because they felt like the norm. They felt like the safety, the safety net. I knew that relationship. So it is really difficult. And I do think that's an amazing point that you are giving your children the tools to identify what is toxic. You are giving your children the opportunity to see that behavior as something that we shouldn't be accepting of and something that we can actually red flag and go, no, that's not normal. So when it does come down to it, they can acknowledge that the the people that they are around are not the ones that they need. Livy, this has been such a good chat. Honestly, I think it's been brilliant and I hope that it's really helpful for anyone who's listening. Can you let listeners know where they can find you? Yes, absolutely. So I did want to mention the journal that I was talking about earlier is called the honest mom journal, the struggling mom's guide to struggling less. And its main purpose is to help you with self-awareness and you can get it anywhere on Amazon in the UK as well. But online, you can find me at diary of an honest mom, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, my website. It's the same diary of an honest mom. You can find me anywhere on the interwebs and I'll be talking about hard things. And uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a really great validating, healing, insightful conversation. It has. And I hope that it has been validating and insightful for those of you that are listening in the same way that it has for us, because these shared experiences are so important. And I cannot reiterate enough to anyone listening that you are never alone, no matter what experience you've gone through, how you've ended up in the position of being low contact, no contact, whatever it might be, you're not alone and you're not the only one who's experienced it. And there is a community of us out there to support you. So thank you so much for coming on this episode, Libby. And I hope you guys have a great week. I will speak to you next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.